0: for the uh, next session um, it's going to be uh, the professor and Sandeep and um, I'll let you two have the floor. Uh, may I just start with a, a general statement. Uh, last year and I see many many faces around who were here last year. We had Tom Zabo; his name was just mentioned and Silver Axe is, mm-hmm. is His website. Now, Tom Sabo is a Hungarian like myself. I like him. He's a young man, very energetic, not the best of speakers. In other words, uh, you know, he is not so. Very technical. Well, all right. He was technical. All right, yeah. His attribute was technicality. And he assumes that everybody is is in perfect command of all. Now, Uh, I have supported Tom over the years. I have uh, invited him to come to Hungary at a a session of the Gold Standard University Live, which existed, then no longer exists, but we have this wonderful Gold Standard Institute here. (coughs) Then I uh, have... uh, uh, invited him for a consultation <coughs> with an American who lives in Alabama, that's not very important, but you know, I I told this wealthy American who had certain worries about hedging and, uh, and so on that I have the theory, but when it comes to practice, I'm not on the firmest of ground, so please invite this young man who is much more conversant with the technicalities of hedging and so on. So he did invite, and he invited Tom, and he came to Alabama, and uh, for a couple of days we had a, a, a good private consultation and there were other instances I just mentioned this because I thought I could expect Tom to have a little bit of loyalty now I was disappointed i just say this because I think that when we are discussing Mm -hmm. theory and practice uh, we should try to remove our personal feelings right because we the motivation is Finding the truth. So, even if sometimes I have to admit that I was wrong, I should do that. Because if I try to pretend that I'm always right, it's, it's not going to be helpful in the long run. So, what happened was that uh, Sandeep spotted the backwardation in december last year and he communicated it to me and I looked at it and uh, I uh, I liked the uh, argument which Sandy produced to support this and went ahead and published several articles on the internet uh, announcing that we have a backwardation it was not clear that it would be permanent, but there was a possibility it might be. If it's not, then well, we just have something which is unique, because by that time the length of this backwardation was longer than any previous episode. Now, the way uh, Tom reacted to this was neurotic. <coughs> he, he went on his website, Silver Axis, and uh, denounced it in a language which I, I found not not acceptable, especially in view of the fact that we, we had this former relationship. So I, I didn't react to it. Uh, so I just kept my grievance to myself. But Tom lives in California, San Jose, and I was hoping that when I went, uh, I was going to go to San Francisco to give a course at the San Francisco School of Economics in July. So I was hoping that uh, we could get together just a few—I don't know—less than a hundred miles. So Jose from San Francisco, and we could just uh, uh, shake hands and everything. I didn't even get a phone call from him, I didn't feel like taking the initiative, he he was younger and so on. Uh, So I'm just, uh, I just thought I had to report this to you so that you know. I. I can recommend Sandeep's research without any reservation. I have studied it. I have compared it with what Tom had to say, already criticized by Sandeep in the earlier talk this, today. Uh, that Tom is taking a theoretical Midpoint of the uh, bid and ask for the future, and the theoretical midpoint of the bid and ask for the spot, and takes the difference, and that's the basis. Now, the problem with this is that, as in the words of Sandeep, which I find admirable, this is a non actionable trade it's a theoretical construct, uh, construction which has no practical application because nobody will sell you the future at a theoretical midpoint and nobody uh, will buy gold from you at a theoretical midpoint. You have to have a concept which is actionable and then you can build a theory on it. you otherwise you are building on quicksand. So that's my base, basic uh, criticism about Tom's construction. I command Sandeep. This is his idea. Different the <coughs> the concept of carry and decarry. This is this is a brilliant idea. It's Goes directly to Karl Menger, who, in the 19th century, introduced this concept that the market never ever produces one single price; it has to be at least two prices: the bid and ask, the lower uh, bid and the higher ask price. And it hardly ever happens that you buy and turn around and sell at the same price. So this idea of a monolithic uh, price is completely unreal. You cannot develop a theory. So this this is what has motivated my own work and I was very pleased to see that Sandy took it a great step had when he introduced this uh, concept in the uh, discussion of the basis and the uh, problem of backwardation and contango. And uh, well, can we say that today we made history because we introduced the other terms? You see, the the same idea, basis, monolithic concept. Menger would come out, get out of his grave, and say, "Gee, are you, after all these years, hundred and thirty years, you could not learn that there is no such thing as a monolithic concept." So there are there are at least two bases concepts. One is. Which is based on the carry, and the other which is based on the D carry. So we introduced, we made history today. You haven't used that before. Core basis. No, no. Could you think of a better word? I don't think so. All right. (laughs) (laughs) So, ladies and gentlemen, a new concept was born today, right here in (laughs) Canberra. Gold Standard Institute sponsored this meeting and uh, from now on we are going to use that language in our publications. I am certainly going to do that myself and I suggest that those who think this is important uh, follow suit. So with this we open the, we are, we are planning to have a dialogue here. Okay, I ask questions, and the answers, and then vice versa. So I asked the first question, which is connected to his earlier talk. We are expecting an event which hasn't happened, but we are fairly convinced that it's coming. We don't know when. The question is, uh, this event is the permanent backwardation of gold and silver, which means that the basis falls to a negative value which is already so deep that there is no chance for the basis to bounce back to positive territory. So the question is this, what kind of configuration of the bases and the co-bases could uh, give an early warning that this uh, permanent backwardation is imminent. One he already mentioned but there are others so my question to you Sandeep is could you repeat the first one which you already explained and what other configurations of the bases mm. and the core bases <coughs> would be as a, a good signal. Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. I think I'll go up to the uh, whiteboard. And From the, the
0: eraser is there. No,
1: the old presentation, there was one shot. Where is the eraser? Ah. we said earlier that faces And we said that, in a normal market, the basis will be like this, as in a fully carrying market, and the co-basis will be negative. Now. Firstly, you're in two dimensions here, as opposed to one dimension, which uh, is a help. But there are many different ways in which the interaction could, could happen before you go into permanent So, what could happen? First clue. The obvious clue, <laughs> the most obvious clue is obviously if the co-basis goes positive but there are interactions that can happen which might lead and be a precursor to the co-basis going positive. So you could have that the basis starts falling, turns negative, but there is still no actionable profit On the code basis spread. <clears throat> so the basis starts falling, is one clue, independent of what the code basis is doing. Now, that is scenario one. Let's label that one. This is
2: another
1: scenario two. This will eventually lead on. It could lead on to something like this. But there is still no actionable profit on the code basis. But there is no actionable profit on the basis either, as in to carry or to de-carry. That's another scenario. That itself could lead on to the third scenario. So this is the morphing of a positive carry, a positive basis, a negative co-basis into a positive co-basis and a negative basis. So what are the clues to watch out for? Well, the carry falling, the basis falling, both being negative. Now, This is the final outcome, permanent backwardation. But if we see the topology of the curves remaining, let's say from that position which we are at the moment, with this, we could move from this and be in a state where we are in this form for a lengthy period of time you know, where you can't actually action a uh, (coughs) trade by the code basis but you cannot carry it either. So that would be your first clue that you're going to be getting into a situation of permanent backwardation or maybe not a permanent backwardation but at least a backwardation. If you resort from having a state like this to this now the move to this as we had in december was not permanent because we moved from this state to this state to this state very very quickly in december and after june sorry after after january we remained in this state so it could revert back to either that state again, or it could revert back to that state. So it turned out that it actually reverted back to the first state without going back to the third state. So is that clear to everyone? Yeah? So there are there are, there are three different topologies that you should watch for. This one, the regular one, that's called this regular. Let's call this slightly irregular <laughs> and call this irregular proper. Irregular proper, is <laughs> that an Any questions?
0: <laughs> really?
1: where the two lines are above the line, both the co and bases are positive? i just um, They could be. Um, that would be slightly more unlikely, though. Because if the if the co-basis has gone positive, um, it's unlikely that you'll be able to carry it positively as well. So, if you're looking... <laughs> Um, you will not spot any of this, obviously, if you're looking at the midpoints of the, the
2: irregular, improper.
1: Yeah, you know, it will just be constantly regular, and then you know, it might not be regular, but there's no there's no special definition to when you're looking at the midpoints of when you're looking at arbitrary midpoints of you know two contracts. There's nothing that you can really say to them. So, let's go back to the last chart that I didn't show. <coughs> yeah. Okay, so the red line here is the basis, carry, and the blue line is the co-basis, the, uh, the decarry. carry So you can see here this is March time, just after we'd had the, uh, the correction, uh, just after the December backwardation. Both of them were still very negative. So the carry and the basis was negative and the co-basis was negative. Now you have to ignore these sharp spikes here. That represents contract expiry. Where you're looking at the quotients of two things that are approaching zero. So you can ignore, <coughs> you shouldn't ignore it if they're spiking up, but as they're spiking down, you can ignore them. So you can see that the market was in the slightly irregular form all the way here. Okay, I need to add a a little addendum to the slightly irregular. Let's call it 2a. Where you have... So you can either have basis above the co-basis or the co-basis above the basis, both in negative territory. territory. So you can see that it was actually quite psychotic, the gold market, as long as you're excluding the contract expiries. Nevertheless, in between, we were still quite psychotic. Look at the way that the basis and the co-basis were behaving here and here, and here, and then all of a sudden we reverted with the December contract back to a regular state of the first one. So what will I be looking for here? I'll be looking for that to morph into one of these three other formations, one of these two particularly before we move back to an irregular proper situation in the gold market. Now that might be permanent, it might not be permanent, but the precursors will be when we have either 2 or 2A happening, leading on to form 3, which is the irregular Co basis being positive and the basis being negative. Yeah?
2: It seems like we're in a phase like transition, you know, in terms of uh, bifurcation move into the next phase. Uh, the water boiling, for instance, just at 95, 98 degrees, just before it turns the steam is highly. Uh, Disorderly, and it seems like that, that's what's happening now. Yeah. It did seem like it. from this slightly irregular, which could actually move in back into the regular, which had indeed mm. happened. But this toing and fro between regular, slightly irregular, and irregular proper. Mm.
1: Um, there is no the irregular proper
2: cycle for a while before it moves to that little phase. Now,
1: there is no irregular proper on this graph here apart from That's right. that previous, previous
0: yeah. before,
1: yes. Which was actually you know the end of the yeah. December move. That's right. And you could argue a bit here but it didn't last very long.
0: So, What you're trying to say is that it's only that period in the last phase, that you've got the box around, Mm. that is indicating leading into 2A or 2B, or 2A, that might lead to a trade.
1: Yes, yes. But the fact that it's gone from one of these two to the regular phase is the trading opportunity as well. It's scary. You yeah. know? Yeah. <laughs> um, and it should be, you know, not biased towards the long side, basically. Because a sustainable rally will have the opposite occurring at some point in permanent acquisition. Now, if that were to change and I know there were some witnesses today talking about gold going into backwardation and silver getting I don't think they are by my calculations. If that were to change, then the stance would change because we would obviously go from a regular state to a quasi-irregular state and maybe an irregular state proper, but we aren't doing that just yet.
0: Is this all clear? All clear? Okay, your turn to ask me a question.
1: How long do you think it will be, Professor, before we do go into permanent backwardation?
0: Uh, I, I would hesitate to be definite in answering this question because certain things are not all that clear to my mind. I can put my finger on the reason why uh, backwardation, if the basis is, is negative enough is not going to recover, so to speak, because the equilibrating mechanism is completely missing. So let me just put myself in the position of a warehouse man. What message does a negative basis, deep enough, uh, mean to him? What message does it carry to him? Well, the warehouseman would be tempted to sell, right? The spot price is high enough, attractive enough. However, he doesn't know, and he is more and more suspicious, that he will never ever be able to replenish his stock. So he could empty his warehouse, but then he's out of business. So, in other words, he will be forced to become, so to speak, a speculator. Because you see, all warehousemen work on the principle that they sell on condition that they can replenish their warehouse. I mean, <laughs> what good is it to sell if that is finishing your business for good? You will never be able to put. After all, a warehouse is also uh, capital. It has uh, has to be built. It has to have security. It has to have services, uh, electricity, etc. And uh, if you cannot put it to good use, then your capital it has to be written off. So, in other words. I can see that the warehouseman at one point will have to become a speculator on the long side. I mean, obviously, he didn't go into this business because he expected to become a speculator. He would have to, he may have his own feelings about the future gold price, but if he is also a speculator he has to carry as an entirely separate account you know if he tries to mix his speculative account with his warehousing account that's a guarantee a guaranteed failure it's, it never works that way so it's not that you cannot wear two hats at the same time but if you do, you've got to separate the accounts and, and be very disciplined about this that you do not let your feeling influence your business decisions if, if, you, if you are not able to do that, if you don't have the necessary discipline finished, you are no good you, you are going to fail sooner or later so, that is my reading of it. That the warehouseman in the gold business is a kind of uh, schizophrenic enterprise. Schizophrenic because he knows that he has to separate these two, the business of warehousing and speculation, but he is forced by the circumstances, which is this long-term vanishing of the basis, as far back in history as we can take it, 1970. It's There's no two ways about it. This is what the message is, that the uh, permanent backwardation is coming. So he knows this, but he doesn't want to be schizophrenic, yet circumstances. Will. So I can see that he will resist, and he tries to be as disciplined as possible under the circumstances. But something has to give as as, as the basis keeps falling. And, and that's psychology, and I'm sorry, I, I don't know how to make a psychological prediction.
2: I, I disagree a little bit because to me, I do not think there are any pure warehousing in gold. The, the, the bullion banks, or indeed <coughs> even the not that we would arbitrage this, but all that warehouse gold, they're running two businesses. They they can use that warehouse to do warehousing, but they also use it to do allocated storage. So when there is no opportunity for them to carry and make a profit, they will still be recovering their uh, storage costs from the pure allocated, which are the people who are long and not looking to sell at all. So I think that they're not out of business. In some sense, that leads to the next thing, which is if you've got a vault, and you've got a whole lot of allocated people in there paying storage fees, then your costs of running that vault are covered. And that means that the cost of actually storing any of your own gold for the purposes of carry is free. So there's actually no cost to carry, apart from funding cost, for a warehouseman because their operational costs are covered by those who repair the system doing allocated storage at one percent or whatever.
0: I, I see a little confusion here, so let's clarify. What constitutes a warehouseman? Is, is a warehouseman somebody who rents out storage space with security and so on to private customers or he, is he a man who keeps an inventory with the purpose of buying and selling or or is it a mixture i'm suggesting it to you that if it's a mixture the successful warehouseman would have to separate these two uh, activities completely because if he mixes them up, then, you, then he cannot say that this arm is profitable, this arm is making a loss. So in order, order to be able to say that the, uh, the operation is profitable you've got to make that separation.
2: Well, that's true, but I, but I think that in practice what Um, would happen is that the capital decision to build a vault, it would be based on the more stable revenue, which is allocated storage, and the cream to the revenue would be the ability occasionally to do a carry and to operate in that market, but you know the business model would be I'm going to build this vault and spend this money. You know, based on based on the more certain revenue, which is, I know there are always people wanting to store allocated gold at one percent. That's a good stable revenue that pays for my vault, and decarry opportunities are profit, a cream on top of that. And whether they come or go doesn't affect, doesn't mean that I'm suddenly out of money and I have to shut my vault and my kids don't have any um, any food. So I think they do mix it up. Um, in some sense.
1: I think that I would, I would define a warehouseman as the person strictly who buys and sells forward. Not in, yeah, yeah, that's that my is the feeling. That's the my feeling.
0: If, I mean, I'm not saying it's impossible to carry mm. on according to Brown's model. It is possible. But if you don't have the discipline to separate the two activities, in the long run you cannot be successful. In other words, uh, for accounting purposes, you've got to consider the two as separate businesses, okay, under the same ownership. But that's like you own a, a bakery and you own a slaughterhouse at the same time. That's possible. But if you start mixing up baking bread and. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you have a bloody, bloody outcome. That's my feeling. I've never been a warehouseman. I'm, I'm just thinking over, put, trying to put myself in the position. And I've studied the same problem quite extensively in a different context Glass seagull the name came up yeah, one yeah. of these days. You see, that was a good, a good legislation in the 1930s because it separated commercial banking from investment banking, you see? And then in 1999, they re-merged the two and that gave all this possibility to bankers to mix up the two. Businesses, and as a result, we have a, a, a total banking failure in the United States. They, they are not able to recover from this because they confused the two. So, that, I mean, that's a different example. But it shows the principle which is underlying that, sure, some banks will have even more than two arms, they will have a savings bank a commercial bank an investment bank and maybe a mortgage bank, but they have to be kept in watertight separate compartments because once you start mixing, it's an invitation to disaster. That's my latest thought on this.
1: I think there's also a point that you know, if you are a warehouseman, as as I define, we define it, the person who buys spot and sells forward, let's say for one year out, there is the question of: is there an alternative use for that inventory in the interim? Now, obviously, with gold and silver, you can you can lease it out um, for for a premium. But the point is, though, that. That is questionable about whether you're being a warehouseman, then, because you might not get the gold back before you have to deliver it. Um, And this goes all the way back to sort of Roman contract law about the very same thing, you know. If someone is depositing their money for a period of time, are they allowed to do something with it in the interim? And the law said, no, basically, you can't.
0: Okay, let me ask the next question. We are looking for proxies for the basis. In other words, I don't think Sandy subscribes to it, I certainly don't, that uh, the basis is already falsified uh, by government or bank intervention. Uh, there might have been efforts, but I don't think they succeeded. However, it is possible that in the future they will succeed. Now in that case, we'll have to look for various proxies which we can use to make the same kind of analysis and and, uh, try to have advanced warning. So, I mentioned a few and I am asking Sandeep if he could add to this list. Taking the ETFs, there is such a thing as NAV—that's net asset value per price or two—the ratio of net asset value and price. This will uh, convey the information to you whether it's whether the ETF, which is exchange-traded fund, it's a, it's a warehouse really, but. Uh, very convoluted <laughs> structure, which uh, could have a price, a share price, which you pay when you want to participate, uh, which is over or under-represented by the holdings of gold. So that price will give you uh, indication Uh, which is actually different from the basis, but it might have some information, if not by itself, than in combination with others. So this is one. ETF, uh, talking about ETFs, the NAV to price ratio. There's another thing which is known as the uh, callback, I'm sorry, to put ratio, this is about options, gold or silver options. You uh, you calculate the outstanding, the open interest of the coal options and compare it with the open interest, the put options of the same maturity, same uh, commodity, and uh, make various analysis. And so that's number two. Now, the third one, which I put on my list, is what I learned very recently from Brown yesterday, which is wonderful. I'm very, very pleased about this. The number of owners per ounce of COMEX <laughs> gold. Who is, who is doing the chart on this? Nick, Nick Leigh. Uh-huh. I, I can recommend it, because I just find the idea brilliant. But uh, it's on a subscription basis, right? You have to subscribe to the service. It's not expensive. Not much. Not Not much. Okay. Okay. I I wish tomorrow we will have a little more time that you can elaborate on that. But I would put this as number three on the list. And. and then, and then uh, the differential quotient of the basis and the co-basis. In other words, you are not looking at the absolute uh, number, but the change, the rate of change. And, and, and these four, I think, are possible candidates, maybe in combination. Now. I I would like to ask Sandy to comment on this and add to it or subtract from it. I
1: think no, they're all they're all um, they're all valid complements to the basis. But the primary angle that I think that I'm going to pursue, instead of looking at COMEX futures, because don't forget, COMEX futures uh, they're they're set at regular intervals and they expire at regular intervals and they're exchange traded. Um, is to go directly to the bullion banks for a one week forward quote. One week, yeah. Aha, uh-huh.
0: yeah, that's very good. That, that's very yeah. good. So uh, that means five business days.
1: Exactly. Okay, exactly. That's something that you you have to call them up personally to ask. It's not something that they that They certainly they wouldn't publish the it. They,
0: won't publish. they don't publish it. But, but if you are a prospective yes. client, yeah. then it's in their interest yeah. to to keep you informed. Yeah. And what
1: we found, actually, Bron and I were actually discussing it at the time, was that if you looked at the forward market directly at the beginning of the year, there was no sign of a direct backwardation, and it would be it would. We were, we were debating as to which would crack, you know, would the forward market come down to the future's market state or would the future's market state go up to the forward market state.
0: What's the difference?
1: Uh, what do you mean? Well, forward, For, forward is bespoke um, and it's done at your, at your choice of expiry. It's like an English suit, isn't it? (laughs) Yes. Well, it's like any suit. It's like an English suit. It's like an English suit. It's a bespoke contract. So you can say, I wanted to expire on the 25th of March 2010. You know. um, The point about it is that when you're looking at one week forward rates, and they give you the spread that's involved with that quote as well, when you're looking at one-week-forward rates, you don't have to deal with this annualization problem that you have with COMEX futures. So you have a consistently good and clear time series, really. How
2: often do you update this? Do you get a daily quote for a week forward, or do you do it weekly?
1: Um, you would get a daily quote. daily quote. Yeah, you'd get a daily quote. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. this is often a little bit, but A, is there any
2: robust data Currently collected about how many futures contracts are required to be settled in physical, and is that possibly a proxy
1: that could be an interesting data point? Well, we yeah we were we were watching that in December, um, and this is goes back to Brian's point that he was making in one of his lectures, is that. You can see how many contracts are up for uh, who, are, who want delivery. You know that's published on the uh, the COMEX website daily. But the point is though that if Deutsche Bank is calling on HSBC for a thousand ounces or ten thousand ounces of gold, it just goes from one end of the vault to the other. You know. So there's no actual gold leaving the system. Which
2: is the more important? Which is the more important, perhaps, the more important the proxy, yes. And
1: there is no data on there it? There is no d- data on it. Is there any
2: way, to, there, there's no way to actually get that data, is there?
1: Uh, no. And I don't really want to phone up and ask them for that kind of data <laughs> 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 that, that, Is that the SOS Yes, yes, yeah. <laughs> basically, basically. I imagine you just see total warehouse stocks, you know, registered eligible some, you know, just on a sharp downtrend, you know, which we didn't really see in uh, in December. We saw the contracts up for tender increasing, but the actual where, the total level of warehouse stocks, there was no, there was no no run, no run, basically. So, so is what we're talking about related to the chart we saw yesterday, where we saw that that um, that, that Stop stocks in the warehouse is, has been coming down since 2000, or is that something different? Um, that was that was bronze stock, was it? Yeah. Which ones are you, think, you know, The, the um, registered stocks.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Um. yeah, but that's only stuff that's put against a contract. I think we need to look at the total amount that's in that system and you know, whether it's coming in or going out, really. Coming out. That's the only thing that matters. Yeah. I said to someone outside. That's, yeah, that's a proxy of the health or the faith of people yeah. in the system, Yeah, that's right. I mean I said outside I don't know who too, but my my view is that if you put yourself in the shoes of the um, proprietary trader within a bullion bank, okay, they have access to lots of data. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they can see all the buying and selling trading, but if the big people that they're trading against are just moving the title to bars is changing in London, but the bars are staying the same, you know, that's that's sort of they get a feel for that. Their position on whether they're going to go long or short will completely change if they start to see bars leaving the vault. You know, because they know that if the bars are leaving the vault that person, because if, if I'm a trader and I'm, I'm, for a bullion bank I've got a large amount of allocated and someone's wanting to sell and I match them off to a buyer and the title changes, the fact that the buyer keeps it within the system tells me as the trader that they've got some sort of time frame that they're going to sell it again. But if that buyer takes those bars out, they're only going to do that if they're holding it for a really long time because the costs of getting it back in, shipping it, blah, blah, blah. So that would be a signal to me as a trader to go, whoa, you know, that guy pulling it out, he's not going to come back too soon. So, you know, in some sense, pulling physical out of the system is the only thing that can really scare them. I just think that although we're tiny players, that would be valuable because that would that would really be an indicator of what's shaken. And sadly, we're at the retail end, and we don't know if you were yeah. marching around in the dark, getting back to what you said, the big guys just go in and Grab with a big fist, and we're fiddling
0: around in the dark like mushrooms, trying to figure out what's going on. Now we have so far five uh, possible proxies for the bases. Briefly, the NAV to price ratio of the ETFs, call put ratio, number of owners per COMEX gold. That's number three differential quotient of bases and co-bases number five is the London uh, Bullion Association uh, five-day forward uh, rate. I suggested a s- number six, which for the time being is not realistic but it could become realistic, so let me say what this is Bullion banks offer you two types of gold uh, uh, metal accounts. One is the allocated and the other is the unallocated account. And obviously they charge more for the allocated account. So you could take the ratio of these two. But uh, Sandy checked it out and he's reporting to me that the difference is not that great and the variation is not very important. Mm. However, we I think agree that it could become it could be. at one point, so uh, it's worth watching. So let's add uh, number six to the list, which is the allocated and non-allocated uh, metal account ratio as a possible proxy for the uh, for the back, uh, for the basis. Would
2: be Chicago Hmm? The storage
0: right on those, or the amount? You, not the storage. No, amount. you buy. You you buy. You can either buy allocated or unallocated. Yeah, the there different are different, different <coughs> locations for that. I think it's always the allocated which is more expensive, right? So, uh, uh, are you are you suggesting as a, a possible indicator, a sixth one? The quantum of uh, volume that's allocated versus unallocated, or the different price for allocated versus unallocated? Different price. Different price.
1: Thank you. If we could get the quanta, that would be much better, though. But that's probably a lot. Oh, well, I'll
2: sell you right? <laughs> 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 Is that free to Oh,
0: it's
2: Oh, I may, I may well
0: press internally
2: that we release that. Yeah. they yeah. are all very sensitive about these
0: things, but this is transparency.
2: We are a small parliament.
0: Time, time is approaching that we have to close this. But I, I have a last question to Sandip. So I don't know how how much time we have. But so uh, markets. How much time do we have? Ten minutes. Ten minutes. Okay, then can please invite more questions to look yeah. forward. Questions. questions? Well, could yeah. I just ask then, Sandy, Sandy others to start
2: commenting on those other proxy measures, particularly the first one, which is one I can understand, which is this lead value versus gold-price
1: ratio. Yeah. I, I haven't really... That's the first time I've heard about it, but it seems like a very, very sensible proxy, you know. But basis to me is, is something that's directly related to the, the business of warehousing, you know, and I want to stay as close to that as possible. But you need to think about potential ways of measuring the proxy, and that is a very good one, you know. It's, um, it's a perfectly observable and time seriesable um, uh, calculation. Any
0: other questions? Yes. Yeah. <clears throat> I just want to ask your opinion on the
2: influence on the basis by government, possible influence. What would happen if uh, they put a tax, not 30% tax, on the uh, bullion that picked, you buy uh,
1: to discourage people from buying gold and silver? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Mm, mm, mm. Well, that would, I don't know what that would do, you know, obviously the spot price would go to a premium, Um, what that would do for for the future price, I don't know, you know, whether that premium would be incorporated into that, you know, it depends, you know, but if they did introduce a tax like that, it would drive the market into a backwardation, I imagine, straight away. You know, so that wouldn't be something that they want to do. But they can influence the basis. You know, um, if you want to make, if, if you wanted to get the market back into that kind of state, you could, uh, you could buy futures. Okay, so just like they're monetizing government debt at the moment, you could monetize gold futures. But that is not a guaranteed way of suppressing the spot price. So you have to sell spot at some point as well. So whilst you can keep the high end of the future up, because there's no limit to the fiat (laughs) currency out there, there is a limit to how much spot gold you can sell. So if this was government manipulation on the basis, it's not something that could last indefinitely. If it was something that was more natural, then it can last longer, you know. That's all you can say. Sandy, yeah. Sorry, ladies and gentlemen, sorry, we're going to have to stop here. The, uh, there's going to be another function in here at 6, and uh, the staff need to uh, get the room ready. Sorry to do uh, okay. that. So thank you.